Jonah chapter 1, the first three verses read this way. The Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it because I have seen how wicked its people are. But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket and went on board hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. Thus begins the story of Jonah. So the word comes to Jonah, no big surprise because Jonah is a prophet and the prophets were those who would speak for God. But the surprise was that God told Jonah to go to Nineveh. He very rarely told his prophets to actually travel to and go to somewhere else. And Nineveh was a major city in the, in the nation of Assyria. Assyria was a nation just to the north of Israel, and Assyria and, and Israel were like mortal enemies. We'll talk more about that. So Jonah, not wanting to go to Nineveh, he takes off in the opposite direction. I want you to see on this map where Nineveh is located, where Joppa is, and where Tarshish is. So he, he, he's supposed to go north to Nineveh in Assyria, but instead he gets on a boat in Joppa and goes as far west, really at that point, the tip of Spain there, where most people think Tarshish was 2,500 miles away. It really was like, that was considered the edge of the world. Like no one really knew what things were like over there, and that's where Jonah went. And so you might be familiar with the rest of the story, but just to summarize, Jonah gets on this ship with all these heathen sailors. They get out on the Mediterranean. God sends this storm, and the sailors begin to say, everybody pray to your God that, that this storm stops. We're going to die. And they cast lots, which was sort of a uh, superstitious way of divining God's will or God's knowledge. They would cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And, and Jonah said, hey, um, yeah, I serve the one true God. Basically, I'm running from him. The only way that you're going to get spared from this storm is if you throw me into the sea. These, these sailors don't want to do that, so they try harder to row against the storm, but finally they realize they can't. They, they cast Jonah into the sea. As soon as Jonah hits the waters, the storm stops, and, and these heathen sailors make sacrifices to the Lord. Jonah begins to sink into the water, thinking this is it for him. He's dead. And all of a sudden, God appoints a big fish to come and swallow Jonah. Jonah spends three days in the belly of this whale or this big fish, and in there, we have Jonah chapter 2, where Jonah prays out to God, gives thanks to God for saving him from the depths of the sea, and also you know, comes to this realization he's going to obey God. So God instructs the big fish, causes the big fish to, to vomit, to throw Jonah up, and so Jonah gets thrown up onto the shore. The word comes to Jonah again, go to Nineveh and declare to them that they're evil and that they're wicked, and I've seen their wickedness. This time Jonah gets up and he goes. He gets to Nineveh and he spends three days traveling all through Nineveh proclaiming this very simple message of uh, there's destruction coming, you're all gonna die, you're all gonna be destroyed. The king of Nineveh, who probably wasn't actually a king, but more like a governor, the governor of Nineveh hears about this and says, we better do something. Who knows, maybe God will relent and forgive us. And so they all begin to cover themselves with sackcloth and ashes, and they fast, and they repent. And this is how the story should end. Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they, the Ninevites, had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. And now, really, this, the book of Jonah should end here. Or maybe there should be one more verse just says, they all lived happily ever after. 
I mean, this is a big win for Jonah. This is something you want to put in your newsletter if you're a traveling evangelist. Like, I went into this city and everybody placed their faith in Jesus. This is a pretty big deal. But this is not where the story ends. We have a fourth chapter. The fourth chapter begins this way. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? This is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God. You're slow to get angry, and you're filled with unfailing love. All the things he was thanking God for in Jonah chapter 2. He's now throwing in God's face in Jonah chapter four. I knew you were like this. I told you, this is your problem, God. You're too kind. You're too merciful. You're too compassionate. This is the thing that drives me crazy about you. Meanwhile, he still reeks of seaweed in the belly of a fish. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Boy, is that good news? God is eager to turn back from destroying people. And then verse three, Jonah says, just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. Quite a story. If you go online, you can find three steps to just about anything. Three steps to happiness, three steps to success, three steps to losing weight, none of those work. Three, three, I've tried them all. Uh, three steps to kicking a bad habit. Well, this morning I wanna, uh, I'm entitling this message three ways or three steps to be a Jonah. Three steps to be a Jonah. And the first thing is this. If you want to be a Jonah, if you want to be just like Jonah, then be certain about what you know. Be certain about what you know. Disney is currently remaking a lot of their cartoons. Aladdin has been in the theaters recently. It's well done. We enjoyed it. And Lion King is out now, and, and Mulan is coming, and, and Little Mermaid is coming. And well, I took my girls to The Lion King, and uh, we were watching it. It was fun. And so after the, after the movie, we were driving home, and we were listening to the soundtrack in the car. And there's a really famous song from The Lion King. If you've seen the movie, you know the song, Hakuna Matata, right? It's all about no worries for the rest of your days. And so they sing the song in, in this version. And uh, at the end of the song, uh, while they're just, the song is kind of winding down, Simba, the main lion character, he begins to uh, riff. It's a musical term for he begins to sort of like just improv. He starts singing his own lyrics. And Timon and Pumbaa don't like him riffing. And Timon, the little meerkat, uh, he, says, he says, oh, no, here he goes. He's riffing now. This is horrible. He doesn't like it. And my girls, my girls have listened to the song a couple times. And I, from the back seat, I hear Caroline go, oh, it's so funny. Like, they think it's so funny that, that Timon says that. She says, it's so funny that he says, let me make sure I get this right, that he says that he's ripping that's what she thinks he says. He's ripping. And Lilia, who's sitting in the front seat with me now, finally old enough to sit up front, very confidently corrects her. No, no, no. He's not saying ripping, Caroline. He's saying griffing. Griffing. <laughs> very confident. So then it was my opportunity to say, no, you're both wrong. He's saying riffing, which then I had to tell him what that word even means. Uh, we tend to be very certain about what we know about things, very convinced in our own opinion, in our own perspective. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. Why? Well, there's a couple reasons. I think he probably was somewhat afraid. The Assyrians had quite a reputation for being violent and evil and wicked. But also we know from Jonah chapter 4 that he didn't want to go to Nineveh because he was afraid that God was actually going to relent and not bring destruction upon Israel's enemies. 
But I think there's another reason why. I mean, he so didn't want to go to Nineveh that he went to the edge of the known world across a dangerous sea on a boat filled with heathen sailors in the other direction, 2,500 miles. Why? I think one of the reasons is this. He'd already made up his mind about the Assyrians. He already had made up his mind about the Ninevites. He didn't need a second look. He didn't need to go visit them. He had heard about them. He knew about them. He didn't need a closer look. He didn't need a different perspective. He knew everything he needed to know about them. In other words, he was certain about what he knew. And he wanted to know those things from a distance. So if you want to be a Jonah, be certain about what you know about other people. Be certain about what you know about people who aren't like you or people who you don't get along with. And keep your distance from them. Distance protects us, doesn't it? As long as we're distant from people who are different than us, or people that we don't get along with, or people whose lifestyles offends us or bothers us, as long as we're distant from them, we don't have to have conversations with them. We don't have to listen to them. We don't have to learn their story. We don't have to think about them. We don't have to feel things about them. We do things like this. We see people in public walking through the mall or walking out in public, and we make snap judgments about them based on the way that they're dressed, based on who they're hanging out with, based maybe on something that you overhear them saying. One bad interaction with, with someone and you write that person off for the rest of their lives or, or people who are like them. You might disagree with their lifestyle or their life choices or whatever, so you write them off. You don't know their stories. And listen, the internet and social media has really made this more easy for us to be distant but informed, isn't it? It keeps us, uh, it keeps us thinking that we are informed, but also keeps us distant, and it, and it removes any need to be engaged relationally to get information, because all you gotta do is read an opinion article or just know something about somebody or watch a video online. In fact, we can tailor our internet engagement to reinforce the things that we're certain about. We only read articles that reinforce and affirm the things we already believe, and we ignore or we dismiss and we attack anything else. So here's the problem with being certain about the things that you know about other people is it keeps you distant from them. And if I'm distant from you, I might be able to make a statement about you, but I can't have a conversation with you, right? And as a church, and as a church leader, I think it's important that we're a church not known for the statements that we make, but for the conversations that we're willing to have. Not the statements that we're willing to shout at people from a distance saying, you're wrong, you're bad, you shouldn't do that. But let's actually have a conversation with people. And Jonah didn't want to have a conversation with the Ninevites. He had no interest in being near any of them. Well, what does compassion do? Because this morning we're really talking about compassion. Compassion leans in. Com compassion looks closer. Compassion listens to understand. Compassion doesn't just listen to correct the other person or to rebuke them or fix them. And compassion is risky, isn't it? If you're gonna have compassion, you're gonna risk certain things. You're gonna risk getting to know people. You're gonna risk realizing that your assumptions were wrong. You're gonna risk having your biases exposed. You're gonna, compassion risks feeling pain. It really does. And we'd rather look away sometimes than look closer. We're certain about what we know and we'd rather not take a second look. Earlier this week, I read a terrible tragic article online about, maybe you saw this, about a dad who was at a beach and a wave knocked him over. In this freak accident, he broke his neck when he hit the sand and he actually died. And he died. In front, and so when I saw that in the headline. I was like, this is terrible. And I, to be honest, I didn't want to keep reading because the more you read, like the more the story starts to hit you. So I, but I kept reading. I realized he was there with his family and they were on vacation. His kids were there. His family's trying to save his life. He's got, and then I read he's got six children. And I'm like, oh my goodness. He, three of them are adopted. And then I read the last thing. And for me, this is personal because of Madeline. Then one of their adopted children has cerebral palsy. So now I'm like a mess. Like 
I'm all in. And to be honest, I was telling Aaron about it later. I was like, I sort of selfishly wish I'd stopped reading sooner. But compassion causes you to keep looking and looking and looking and leaning in. We have to be careful that we don't just jump to conclusions about people based on things that we are very sure of, even based on legitimate past experiences or based on things that we believe to be true. I mean, look at Jesus. In fact, I was studying this week, and, and one of the commentators that I read said, the number one emotion that's attributed to Jesus when you study the Gospels is compassion. Compassion is attributed to Jesus more than any other emotion. And so I think what that means is anytime we do anything in the name of Christ and it's not compassionate, we're not aligned with his heart. Jesus looked closer. He looked again. Aren't you glad that Jesus saw beyond his first impression of you? Anyone glad that Jesus kept looking at you, that he had compassion on you, that he didn't quit on you, that he didn't grow weary of you, that he didn't give up on you? Jesus looked at these unruly fishermen and he saw world changers. Jesus looked at a cowardly religious leader named Nicodemus who would only come to him under the cover of night and he saw someone who would be his follower eventually, would step up actually when Jesus died to provide the spices for his burial. Jesus saw a Samaritan woman at the well who had many broken relationships and many divorces and past husbands and he saw someone that he was going to use to bring other Samaritans to experience the living water that's found in him. Jesus saw a woman who was caught in adultery and thrown at his feet and saw someone who could live free, live free of sin. Jesus looked up a tree and saw a greedy tax collector named Zacchaeus and saw someone who could be generous and give his wealth away for the kingdom of God. Jesus looked at a man who was a demoniac who didn't even know his own name anymore, who didn't even have the sense enough to wear clothes, and he looked at this demoniac and he saw a man who would be a mighty evangelist and who would win his, his, his village to Jesus. Jesus looked at Peter, the denier, and saw someone who would be a preacher in an early church leader. Jesus looked at Thomas, the doubter, and saw somebody who would bring the gospel to India and be a martyr for his faith. This is what compassion does. It looks beyond the obvious, and it sees something else. What about you? Where were you when Jesus saw you, quote, unquote? Of course, he's always seen you, but where were you? And what does he see in you this morning? He's willing to come close. We know this because he was the word who became flesh. He takes a closer look. He looks again. He's not the God of a second chance. He's the God of another chance. This is the God that we serve. He's compassionate. Now, here's the question for us this morning. If this is true, and it is, how do we extend that compassion in the world around us? How do we live lives? What if the church was known primarily for being compassionate? I don't agree with everything that they teach. I don't believe everything they believe, but they're the most compassionate people in clay. It's the most compassionate neighbor I have, the most compassionate coworker I know. How do we extend that kindness to other people? You know, let's reflect upon this question for a second. What type of person do you see in public or on TV or on the internet? What type of person do you see and assume that you know everything you already need to know about them? You won't give them the time of day, you won't have a conversation with them, you won't seek to learn their story. You won't seek to understand them. Is there that type of person in your life? And God's asking us to be less certain about the things that we know about other people and be willing to look again. If you want to be a Jonah, be certain about what you know. Secondly, if you want to be a Jonah, be complacent about what you see. Be complacent about what you see. Jonah isn't actively doing anything to harm the Assyrians. He's not hating them. He's not hurting them. He's not even prophesying against them, which as a prophet, maybe he could have done. And here's the thing to understand the context of what's happening here with Jonah. Jonah prophesied in the 8th century, right about in the middle of the 8th century. 
In the ninth century, so the century before, because we're in the BCs, in the ninth century, Assyria was tremendously powerful, evil, and violent towards Israel. In my studies, I've read some paragraphs that described what the Assyrian army would do to people. I can't even read it in mixed company. It's so brutal. It's so unthinkable what they would do. They were terribly violent, wicked, evil people in the ninth century. And this is what the Israelites knew about Assyria. So they had a lot of reasons to not want to see Assyria experience God's favor. But by the eighth century, history tells us things have changed a little bit. Assyria, and we don't exactly know why, it could be some of God's judgment, but Assyria has lost some of their power. They're still a nation, but they're really struggling. They're struggling politically, they're, strugg they're struggling with their army, with their military, they're struggling financially, and they're struggling so much that they basically leave Israel, leave Israel alone for a little while because they don't have the resources and the margin to deal with them. And during this time, Israel, despite the fact that they're not serving the true God, they actually begin to flourish. And they flourish, uh, they have political stability for a little while, they have financial wealth. Actually, they begin to kind of almost return to the days of Solomon where things are great. And so Israel is now in a position of strength. They're doing well. They're starting to get lands back. In fact, Jonah himself prophesied in 2 Kings 14.25 that they were going to get certain lands back, and they did. Israel is in a place of strength finally. So Jonah might be thinking, why do anything to mess with this? This is going pretty well. What's, what's wrong with us having the strength? Why would we go and talk to the Ninevites? A couple weeks ago, I was listening to a podcast by an author named Malcolm Gladwell. He has a podcast called Revisionist History. And in it, he quoted a Jesuit professor, a professor at Boston College named James Keenan. And James Keenan wrote a book called Moral Wisdom. And he's talking about when you look at the life and teaching of Jesus, I thought this was interesting. When you look at the life and teaching of Jesus, Jesus is spending most of his time and most of his energy confronting people who sin from a place of strength and not from a place of weakness. Let me say it again. Jesus spends most of his time, his teaching, his energy, confronting the people who are sinning from a place of strength and not from a place of weakness. Think of the woman caught in adultery. She was sinning from a place of weakness, but who does he confront primarily and at least first? The men who are sinning from a place of strength and power. And what James Keenan suggests is that we know our weaknesses and we're not proud of them. We, you, you could all stand up and say, this is something I'm weak at. This is something I struggle with. And we confess our weaknesses and we work on our weaknesses. But what he's saying is that the greatest danger to your heart is not really your weaknesses. The greatest danger to your heart is often what you think to be your strengths, the things that you're good at. We don't confess those. We rely on them. And then he, he gave the example of parables, how Jesus would teach people are sinning from a place of strength, not a place of weakness. He talks about the, the good Samaritan, remember the priest and the Levite, who did not stop to help. Talk about someone who didn't look closer. They, in fact, the Levite, it implies in the text that he crossed the road to the other side so he could be further away. Think about the rich man. We don't know his name, but he wouldn't share his wealth with Lazarus. The virgins who didn't care for the oils in their lamps. The man who did not wisely invest his talents or really invest his talents at all. The son who didn't work the field as he had promised. And so James Keenan is pointing out, these people are sitting from a position of strength, not from a position of weakness. And then he said this, and this quote really stuck with me. He said, based on this, one of the ways that we should understand sin is that sin, listen, sin is the failure to bother to love. Sin is the failure to bother to love. These people couldn't even be bothered. They couldn't give them the time of day. 
Sin is the failure to bother to love. And complacency is the enemy of compassion. Because complacency is, listen, complacency is the willingness to be moved, right? Watch some sad little show or watch some little commercial to be moved and to feel something. We all are, well, we all like to feel something. We all like to be moved and feel something. Com- complacency is the willingness to, 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 to be moved and to feel something, but the unwillingness to actually move and do something. I'm willing to feel something, but, but I, I don't know about actually doing something. That's what complacency is. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, in the New Testament, in chapter 4, verse 17 of his letter, he said, remember, it's sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. If there's something good to do, sin's not just doing the wrong things. Sin sometimes is when there's something good before us to do and we don't do it. There's a famous quote from John F. Kennedy in his 1961 speech where he says, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men, and I'll say good women, to do nothing. Complacency. Be complacent about what you see. See, compassion doesn't accept the status quo. Compassion doesn't bury its head in the sand. Compassion isn't satisfied with just me being comfortable. Well, my life is comfortable. I'm good. I'm comfortable. It's, you know, everything's fine. Compassion doesn't say this. Well, at least I'm not the problem. You know, sometimes when we're trying to get our kids to pick up a mess in the house, they're very good at distinguishing what they, which mess they made and which mess they didn't make, right? <laughs> go pick up the toys in the living room. One of my daughters will go, she did it, though. And I'll say, I don't care who made the mess. You're all going to help pick it up, right? And sometimes when we look around the world and we see little messes here and there, we say, it's not my fault. I'm not responsible for that. Yeah, maybe, maybe there are other people responsible for that, but I didn't do it. My generation's not responsible for that sin, so I don't have to do anything about it. You know, I'm not in that part of the world, so it's not my problem. It's very comfortable, it's very complacent to say that and to think that way. However, compassion takes responsibility for things and sees wherever there's a mess, I wanna be a part of God's work of healing and restoration. Compassion doesn't say that's not my problem or that's someone else's problem. Compassion is not complacent. Now maybe you're thinking at this point, yeah, but listen, David, there's so much need I mean, if I'm compassionate, people are going to take advantage of me. There's so many, you know, there's so many, you know, why do, you, why do, givers, have to, why do givers have to have boundaries? Because takers don't have any, right? So I understand the wisdom and boundaries, but maybe you're thinking, I, I can't, what am I supposed to do? I read this story this week about when Mother Teresa met a man named Hal Donaldson, who was the CEO of a company, and she said to Hal Donaldson, what are you doing for the poor? What are you doing for those who have nothing? And he kind of shamefully said, I don't, I'm not really doing a lot. And she said to him, everyone can do something. Everyone can do something. Hal Donaldson is now the CEO of an organization that we support called Convoy of Hope, which feeds children all over the world and, and is, at, is at the site of all sorts of natural disasters, bringing water and other supplies. Andy Stanley, a pastor down in um, Atlanta, was talking about this, how sometimes we're paralyzed by the, you ever felt paralyzed by the amount of need paralyzed by the things that need to be done. And here's what Andy Stanley said, and I thought this was so helpful. He said, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Do for one what you wish could, you could do for everyone. Don't let the overwhelming amount of the need paralyze you to the point where you're not helping anyone. Start with one person. Who's one person in your life that needs help that you can start helping and directing your compassion to? How do you use your resources, your time, your talent, 
your treasure. Ask this question. What am I doing intentionally and regularly to inconvenience myself, to discomfort myself, to lay down my comfort? What am I doing that I wouldn't naturally choose to do because I'm responding to the compassion of God that's been directed towards me by directing compassion to others? As Christians, we have to refuse complacency. All right, so if you want to be a Jonah, be certain about what you know, be complacent about what you see, and then lastly this morning, if you want to be a Jonah, be centered on what you need. Be centered on what you need. There's a poet named Thomas Carlyle, Christian poet. He wrote a series of poems called You, Jonah. And uh, one, of his, one of the parts of his poem was a poem called Tantrum. I want you to listen to what he says as we get to this part in the story. The generosity of God displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he slashed with angry prayer at the graciousness of the Almighty. I told you so, he screamed. I knew what you would do, you dirty forgiver. You bless your enemies, and you show kindness to those who despitefully use you. I would rather die than live in a world with a God like you. And don't try to forgive me either. Jonah chapter four, verse five, says that Jonah went out to the east side of the city and he made a shelter to sit under and he waited to see what would happen to the city. Jonah wanted a front row view to the destruction of Nineveh and he wanted to see it happen. And while he was out there, the sun began to beat over him and make him hot. And God caused a plant to grow up quickly overnight and to give Jonah shade. And Jonah was so happy about this plant. I mean, he loved this plant. Some of you can't grow anything. You would love if anything would grow. And Jonah was like, so happy about this plant. And then God sent a worm. And this worm, just as quickly as the plant popped up, this worm destroyed the plant. And Jonah is so angry. He's under the scorching wind and the heat. The sun gets hot. Jonah again says, I would just rather die. God says to him, is it right for you to be so angry, Jonah? Look at this in verse 10. This is how the story ends. Then the Lord said, you. Now in the Hebrew, that, that word you there is emphasized twice. So it's like God is saying, then the Lord said, you. You. He's putting his finger in his chest. You feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. You have compassion on this plant, and you had nothing to do with this thing. It came quickly, and it died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who are living in spiritual darkness, who don't know their right hand from their left hand, not to mention all of the animals. Shouldn't I, and here again, God uses the Hebrew emphasis of I twice. Shouldn't I, I, feel sorry for such a great city? And this story ends with a question, and we're all like, that's terrible. That's not how stories are supposed to end with questions. What happens? And the question ends or the story ends with a question because the question is not for Jonah as much as it's for you and me. It's for us to ask, who do we have compassion on? Jonah loved his physical comfort more than he loved their spiritual condition. Jonah loved his temporary relief from the sun more than he cared about their eternal rescue. Jonah loved a plant more than he loved people. And if you look at an over, overall summary of the four chapters of Jonah, what you see in chapters one and two, Jonah and the pagan sailors turn to the Lord and Jonah is grateful. But chapters three and four, Jonah and the pagan Ninevites turn to the Lord and Jonah is angry. He's angry. God had compassion on Jonah. God had compassion on the heathen sailors. God had compassion on the Ninevites. You know who Jonah had compassion on? Himself. Jonah has compassion on Jonah. Jonah's thinking about Jonah. He's centered on himself. And let's be real this morning. Let's be honest. We all struggle with this. Little self-absorbed. 
a little self-centered, a little hard to think about others because we're always thinking about ourselves. God wants to set us free from that. Another part of Thomas Carlyle's poem reads this way. Jonah stalked to his shaded seat and waited for God to come around to his way of thinking. And God is still waiting for a host of Jonas in their comfortable houses to come around to his way of loving. God's still waiting for a host of Jonas sitting in their comfortable houses in the suburbs of Syracuse for many of us, waiting for us to come along to his way of loving. What is his way of loving? It's costly. It's expensive. It's inconvenient. It costs us something. Compassion isn't centered on what I need. Compassion considers others first. We serve a compassionate God. You know, when you look at the story of Jonah, and I'll finish with these two thoughts, there's two very obvious things about God. Number one, God has all the control. And number two, God has all the compassion. All the control and all the compassion. One of the central themes of Jonah is the sovereignty of God. Think about the story. God calls Jonah to go. Jonah runs away thinking he can escape the presence of God. What does God do? God sends a storm. Then God oversees even the casting of lots so that the lot falls on Jonah. And then God stops the storm and he sends the fish. And then he causes the fish to vomit Jonah. And then God relents from his destruction of Nineveh. Then God sends the sun and then he sends the plant and then he sends the worm. God is sovereign over creation. He's appointing things and he's sovereign over your life. He's appointed things throughout your life to bring you to where you are this morning for a very purpose and for his specific plan. God has all the control, he's sovereign, God also has all the compassion. He's kind. And we look at Jonah, we see a prophet who is sent to a wicked people who then descended for three days into the belly of the whale. And when he emerged from the deepness of the darkness, he came and he brought a message that brought change and hope to people who were far from God. But Jonah is not who we place our hope in, is he? Because we serve a God who's better than Jonah. And we have a true and better Jonah, Jesus, the prophet who was sent with the word. He did not run away. He kept focused to his task, no matter what it was going to cost him. And he went to the cross, and then he descended for three days into the grave. And then he rose from the grave with a message that brings hope and change for us all. This is the God that we serve. This is the God that we love. Look at his compassion. Consider how much he loves you. God loves you. He's for you. He has good plans for you. He's compassionate towards you. He understands where you are this morning. He understands your struggle. He's not standing against you. He's standing behind you. He's standing with you. And as we begin to have our hearts filled with the compassion of God, here's what inevitably happens. We start being compassionate to other people. Are you a compassionate person this morning? Because you serve a compassionate God. Is your heart broken for people whose lives are broken? Do you meet needs when you see needs? Are you looking for ways to give and to stretch yourself and to do something for those who can't do anything for themselves? This is what we're called to do, is to be compassionate people because we serve a compassionate God. Let's pray together this morning.